0: Gold, sixty cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then the herald loudly proclaimed Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship it will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, um, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention um, to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned the three, So these men were brought before the king. Uh, Sidrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the god we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with the three, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up the three. And they were... And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his, leaped to his feet in, in amazement and asked his advisers, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Sedrach, Meshach, Abednego!" Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So the three came out of the fire, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, "Praise be to the God of Zadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel, and who has sent his angel and rescued his servants." They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. La lectura de esta mañana es del tercer capítulo de Daniel. El rey Nabuconosor mandó hacer una estatua de oro de 27 metros de alto por 2 metros y medio de ancho y mandó que, lo, que la colocaran en los llanos de Dura, en la provincia de Babilonia. Entonces los heraldos proclamaron a voz en cuello, a ustedes, pueblos, naciones y gente de toda lengua, se les ordena lo siguiente, tan pronto como escuchen la música de trompetas, flautas, cítaras, liras, arpas y zampoñas y otros instrumentos musicales, deberán inclinarse a, y adorar a la estatua de oro que el rey Nabucodonosor ha mandado erigir. Todo el que no se incline ante ella ni la adore será arrojado de inmediato a un horno en llamas. Pero algunos astrólogos se presentaron ante el rey y le acusaron, y acusaron a los judíos. Que viva su majestad por siempre, exclamaron. Pero hay algunos judíos, no a quienes su majestad ha puesto al frente de la provincia de Babilonia que no acatan sus órdenes no adoran a los dioses de su majestad ni a la estatua de oro que mandó erigir, se trata de Sadrach, Mesach y Abednego lleno de ira Nabucodonosor los mandó llamar cuando los jóvenes se presentaron ante el rey Sadrach, Mesach y Abednego le respondieron Nabucodonosor no hace falta que nos defendamos ante su majestad Si se nos arroja al horno en llamas, el Dios que al que servimos puede librarnos del horno y de las manos de su majestad. Pero aún si nuestro Dios no lo hace así, sepa usted que no honraremos a sus dioses ni adoraremos a su estatua. Ante la res- respuesta, el rey se puso muy furioso y cambió su actitud hacia ellos. Mandó entonces que se calentara el horno siete veces más de lo normal y que algunos de los soldados más fuertes de su ejército ataran a a los tres jóvenes y los arrojaron al horno en llamas. Fue así como los arrojaron al horno con sus mantos, sandalias, turbantes y todo, es decir, tal y como estaban vestidos. Tan inmediata fue la orden del rey y tan caliente estaba el horno que las llamas alcanzaron y mataron a los soldados que arrojaron a Sadrach, Mesach y Abednego, los cuales atados de pies y manos cayeron dentro del horno en llamas. En ese momento Nabucodonosor se puso en pie y sorprendido les preguntó a sus consejeros, ¿Acaso no eran tres los hombres que atamos y arrojamos al fuego? Así es, su majestad, le respondieron. Pues miren, ahí en el fuego veo a cuatro hombres sin ataduras y sin daño alguno, y el cuarto tiene la apariencia de un dios. Dicho esto, Nabucodonosor se acercó a la puerta del horno en llamas y gritó, Sadrach, Mesach y Abednego, siervos del Dios Altísimo, salgan de ahí y vengan acá. Cuando los tres jóvenes salieron del horno, los sátrapas, prefectos, gobernadores y consejeros reales se remolinaron en en torno a ellos y vieron que el fuego no les había causado ningún daño y que ni uno solo de sus cabellos estaba chamuscado. Es más, su ropa no estaba quemada y ni siquiera olía a humo. Entonces exclamó Nabucodonosor, alabado sea el dios de estos jóvenes que envió a su ángel y los salvó ellos confiaron en él y desafiando la orden real optaron por la muerte antes de que honrar y adorar a otro dios que no fuera el suyo por tanto yo decreto que se descuartice a cualquiera que hable en contra del dios de Sadrak, Mesac y Abednego y que su casa sea reducida a cenizas sin importar la nación a que que pertenezca o a la lengua que hable no hay otro dios que pueda salvar
1: you got any more languages you want to share? Oscars are C3PO today. Uh, h- how are you guys doing? It, it was uh, a little warm here earlier. You guys doing okay? Um, It was hot. I I promise you it wasn't because we were trying to give you a multimedia experience of this passage here uh, with this blazing furnace and all, Um, but hope you're comfortable. Um, uh, But we got a great passage to look at here. I'll try to uh, move quickly through things so that we have ample time to talk about it. As you may know or may not know if you're new, uh, we love having Q&A right after our sermon. A chance to learn and digest and talk through stuff. So if you have questions, jot them down, write them down. And uh, any question is fair game. Uh, I think I remember John, I don't know if you're here this week, but he had a question about civil disobedience a couple weeks ago. I said, hey, hang on, we're getting there. Uh, So here we are. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time to look at your word. And we know that you have something to say to every single one of us if we would hear. So open our eyes And open our ears to see you, to hear you, to uh, receive you. Remove any resistance we have, whether if that's uh, something in our hearts or something else. We just don't know, God. We have every way to run from you. Uh, So come now. Pierce our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. How do you live a believing life in an unbelieving or differently believing world? That's the question that we're exploring uh, through this brief study in the book of Daniel from the Old Testament. And it's an incredibly helpful place in the Bible for us to turn to explore this question because it tells the story of four Jewish young men in the 6th century B.C., who were deported from their homeland, Israel, and now they're forced to live as exiles in Babylon. In other words, they are figuring out how to live as resident aliens, uh, citizens of another place, but residents of this place. Some of you personally know what that's like in your own personal lives. You're bicultural, you're bilingual, and maybe this is a helpful way of summarizing what living by faith in a multi-faith city is all about. And that is that Christians are called to be spiritual resident aliens. Citizens of God's kingdom, but deeply invested residents of this beautiful but also broken world people that are spiritually bicultural, can we put it that way, and even bilingual, neither blindly imitating nor fearfully separating, but humbly incarnating the love of Jesus to neighbor. That's what this brief sermon series is all about. And today we're looking at a passage that tells us What happens when there's a clash between these two worlds? Because here's what happened. You saw it in verse 1 right from the start. King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made an image of gold. It is massive. 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. That's what 60 cubits and 6 cubits translate in today's terms to be. It was visible wasn't a secret statue wasn't stuck in a museum it was visible he set it up on a plain of dura in the province of babylon unobstructed view where everyone could see it why because it was to be worshiped we're told a, a royal herald loudly proclaimed this is what you're commanded to do as soon as you hear the sound of music you must fall down And worship the image of gold, and whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Uh Uh-oh. So, of course, at this point, you might say, well, what's that got to do with me? Living here in this city, in this country, in this day and age, I don't see any 90-foot-tall statues. And I am not told about any." Great blazing furnaces waiting for me. How is this relevant to me? Well, let me respond to that really in two ways. First of all, let's not forget that in some places in the world, in many places in the world today, people are still being literally burned and literally killed for their faith in Jesus. It's a luxury, you might even say a blessing, that we could even hear a passage like this and at times question its relevance to us. In fact, next week we're going to spend a little bit of time praying for what's often called the persecuted church. Uh, Followers of Jesus around the world who face rejection, violence, sometimes even martyrdom because they bear the name of Jesus. We're going to remember them as brothers and sisters and pray for them. But, second, it's helpful and important for us to remember this. Some cities do indeed have visible statues before which its citizens must bow down. And some cities do have a literal furnace for those who refuse to. But here's the deal. Every city has an invisible 90-foot-tall, 9-feet-wide golden image and an invisible blazing furnace for those who do not bow. Do you know that? Are you aware of that? And that's because every city, whether if it's ancient Babylon or if it's Washington, D.C., has what you might call spiritual idol. Ways in which what's meaningful in life is defined for you. What's ultimate in life. What you must give your life to if you're going to be an operating member of this city, of this society. And all these demands and pressures to treat these things as if they were God. As if they could bring us joy like the God of the Bible alone can. As if these things can give us satisfaction or security or comfort or meaning or identity. We're surrounded, aren't we, by pressures to bow down and worship the idols of this city. So, for example, pressure to bow down to what you might call the idol of tolerance. Where, of course, we're not just talking about kind and respectful ways of interacting with people. If you've been here with us, you know that our church is passionately committed to that. But I'm talking about the idol of tolerance when it becomes an end in itself. When you're not even able to listen to people that disagree with you. In fact, you must squash disagreement. The only way for you to interact with different kinds of people is to bring the conversation down to the lowest common denominator or not to talk at all. The pressure we have around us to bow to the idol of personal freedom, which is why some of us struggle with the idea of committing to a relationship or why we struggle with the idea of anyone, even God, telling us how we ought to live our lives. Or maybe it's the pressure to bow down to the idol of self-sufficiency I can do it myself. No one tells me what to do. Every opportunity I get, I see it in my daughter already, the way that she's been shaped, trying to teach her. No, Elena, it's okay when you need daddy's help. It's okay that we have to do this together. I do it myself. It's okay to need help. Dear friends, It's okay to need help. Pressure to bow to the idol of having it all. Expecting of yourself or other people around you to be smart, to look good, to be a devoted mom or dad or a prospective mom or dad, to have a great job, to be happy, to have it all. Pressure to bow to the idol of respect. That nobody must cross me. No one can dare say a disrespectful word to me. Not drivers on the road, not bikers on... Well, maybe bikers. We'll give them a little bit of a break. Can't look at me wrong, can't talk to me wrong. The pressure to bow to the idol of helping people. I was thinking about this one this week. This city with its wonderful reputation for public service masses of people that come here or who live here for that purpose, there is a way in which you can deify, treat like a God the idea of being helpful. Which is why so many people can pass up on wonderful job opportunities or relationships because you feel like your life isn't going to be meaningful unless you find a way to be helpful. Pressure to bow to the idol of impact similar, where you have to be changing the world or making a difference in order to be a somebody to feel significant. Maybe that's why you can never stop, never stop working, never stop thinking about work, or take a Sabbath, or why you're forever looking for the perfect job. Guys, the the, the seduction is so subtle, because it's in the air and in the water and in our workplaces and in our conversations, it shapes us. It's sort of like in our DNA. And we can't see that 90-foot statue standing before us, but you can hear the music play. Will you bow? People bow. And just like, like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there is punishment for refusing to bow, word gets out, someone notices, verse 12, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you've set up. And so you've said no to the idol of tolerance, and people might start calling you a bigot. Just because you maybe actually believe something. Or you've said no to the idol of self-sufficiency, you're strangely counter-culturally honest about your shortcomings with your friends, roommates, family members, neighbors, and even co-workers, and maybe even your boss, and people start thinking you're weak or incompetent. Maybe opportunities don't open up like they used to, and there's a furnace. There always is a furnace for non-worshippers. You know that, right? You know where you might be thrown into the furnace of ridicule or personal criticism or rejection, Neighbor looks at you funny or you lose a friend or your reputation takes a hit. You might be thrown into the furnace of a lower paying job or a lost opportunity. Or maybe you're not a victim of active opposition or what you might call persecution. But you work in a system that almost guarantees that you will incur financial loss if you go to church on Sunday rather than keep your small business open an extra day. You might be thrown in a furnace and some of them really do feel like hell, which is exactly why some of us simply prefer to bow. But not these guys. Not these three. Young men, young men. Remember, we said this, maybe in their late teens, maybe early 20s, committed to their God. No reinforcement around them. They are in exile in a foreign land surrounded by a pagan culture. Courageously resolute in their love for the God who has blessed them so. How did they do it? How did they do it? Three quick things and then we're done. Number one, notice that they were for the city but against idolatry. They were for the city and yet against idolatry. See, it's easy for us to talk about this passage as if the calling is to be basically against the city of Babylon or the city of Washington, D.C., where Christians are always called to critique everything and everyone and only expect the worst of the unbelieving world. Don't miss it. You have to read this in the wider setting of all that we've been learning about these guys. They did their absolute best to remain for the good of Babylon. Fully invested in Babylonian life. They're described as Jews whom you have set, Nebuchadnezzar, over the affairs of the province of Babylon. They work for the government. They have leadership positions. They're working for the good of this pagan Babylonian society. They want it to succeed. They're being good neighbors. They're planting roots. They have a clear track record on some level of being pro-Babylon. They're servants in that way. Prior to this point, they were, as Jesus put it in Luke 20, giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. Or as the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians put it, becoming like a Babylonian in order to win over some Babylonians for the sake of the gospel. Whereas Romans 13 puts it, submitting to the government authorities, the governing authorities, which indeed have been ordained by God. They were for the city, which means their civil disobedience in the end, when they said, we can't do that, was absolutely a last resort. They weren't walking around throwing up their hands with sort of this victim like mentality oh, everybody hates us here. Oh, nobody likes us. They were for Babylon until they couldn't be any longer. Because sometimes you do need to draw a line. It's a principle laid out in the book of Acts chapter 5 verse 29 when a couple of Jesus' disciples go out and they're sharing the good news of Christ with other people. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can have genuine meaning to your lives. And they said, stop preaching. The rulers and the authorities of the land and these men said, we cannot disobey God and obey man. We must obey God even if it means disobeying man. Because when a civil government or a friend or a group or an authority figure in our lives requires resistance to God or disobedience to God, then we must instead, we must disobey them. They drew a line firmly, clearly, and directly. But did you notice how they did so respectfully and even humbly? I mean, notice the way they address Nebuchadnezzar in verse 16. King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, not, hey, buddy, you know, hey, no, not, not a, uh, hey, you instrument of Satan here. King Nebuchadnezzar, twice they refer to him as your majesty, even as Nebuchadnezzar grows more furious and turns up the heat. Even when they decided to disobey the king, they were visible in their resistance, but not demonstrative. They were quiet. They were modest. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar didn't even know about it until some of their co-workers ratted them out. Sometimes, of course, it may be appropriate to draw public attention to an injustice, to call for social change, to make your resistance a little bit more public. But as one commentator says really wisely, I think, people of faith do not have a psychological need to make a big deal out of their acts of heroism. They do not need always to be drawing attention to the fact that they are different than others. Friends, here it is. Is there a a line that you need to be drawing? Is there a 90-foot statue in the room or in your heart that you need to be resisting? An idol of the city, an idol of society that you have been taken into your heart and treating like your God. Is there a line you need to be drawing Where you're saying, I am for this city, but against idolatry. Where I'm for this friendship, but I'm against idolatry. I'm for this job, but I'm against bowing to these idols. Where you would say in the words of Acts 5, we must obey God rather than man. Is there a line you should be drawing that you haven't been drawing or that you have been, but not with humility and respect? Number two, they trusted in God's character rather than in changed circumstances. They trusted in God's character, not in changed circumstances. Listen to what they say to the king right before they're about to be thrown into this pit. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves, interesting, before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we will—we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. See, they're willing to take on whatever consequences, even penalties for the faithfulness that they're abiding by, their loyalty to God. They know they're going to take a hit. Do you know, dear Christian, that if you follow Jesus, you will have to take hits? The church really has to give up on this enterprise of living for the acceptance of the world. And I don't mean being obnoxious. We see the example here of respectful, humble disagreements. But you will take hits. And when that happens, do you understand that God indeed is able and willing to deliver you, to help you? But even if he does not, even if it hurts, even if there are great sacrifices that you're called to, Even suffering, maybe even to the point of death. Do you believe that your God is still good? That your God is still the God of all salvation? That the truth that you live and die for is worth living and dying for? That your God is God and that statue is not? And sometimes, and all too often, when we pray or when we are finding ourselves in these trials, our confidence is not in God. Our confidence is in our circumstances one day changing soon. And that's very different, isn't it? If you start to say, God, you can't not answer this prayer in exactly the way I specified, then your trust isn't in God's wisdom, your trust is in your own. Your trust isn't in God. Your trust is in change. That's not faith. That's extortion. Here are these three men that said God is able to, God is willing to rescue us. And in fact, we believe he's going to. And they were right. But they said, but even if he does not, nothing changes for us. Nothing changes for him. Do you have that kind of faith? in trial thirdly and lastly they were protected by the son of god it was a miracle have no doubt about it that these came out these three men came out with absolutely flammable clothing the passage makes it clear giving us all the Wonderful stuff that has every reason to light on fire. Verse 21, so these men wearing their robes, their trousers, turbans, other clothes, that the flames of fire killed us. These things had every reason to burn. This was not a David Copperfield magic act that happened. It was a miracle. And yet hear the words of Nebuchadnezzar. What was it that really protected them? He said in verse 25, look, I see four men walking around in the fire. Unbound and unharmed. Four men. Hold on a second. Didn't we put three in there? Four men and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Peering in there, he sees a fourth figure walking around, one that looks so unusual that he believes really this might be a god. A being that seemed to be of such enormous power, something supernatural, maybe even God himself. Indeed, could it have been? Jesus, the Son of God, 600 years before he showed up personally and physically on this earth, showing up as Savior and protector, giving them victory over death, victory over evil powers. This is God with us, even in the furnace. Friends, whatever it is you're going through and whatever the cost a faithfulness might be for you in your relationships, in your work, in your lives. Do you know that God is with you? And do you notice it's a baffling thing for us because we never would have written the story in this way. That he doesn't save them from the furnace, he saves them in the furnace. He's a God who says, whatever you endure, I am there with you. The words of Isaiah 43 almost definitely hearkening to this story. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. For I am the Lord your God. You are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you, and I love you, and I love you. Words and promises you need to hear straight from the heart of God if you're in a furnace today or if you're about to be tossed into one. Here's a God, of course, who came in the person of Jesus who suffered in the hottest of all furnaces, the furnace of God's wrath on the cross. Taking the punishment for all of our sins, hell itself being poured upon his soul as he hung there and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if we can savor that truth and that reality, dear friends, This is the unique power that we can have. That if we remember that Christ went into the furnace for us, then we can be reassured that he is always in all of our other furnaces with us. Because why is he going to start bailing out on you now? Why is he going to start deciding that he's not going to walk with you now? Or suffering with you now when he took all your stripes and sufferings on the cross? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. The satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them dear friends, when resisting the idols of our city out of loyalty to God. You will need courage and you will need power to endure the various furnaces that are put before us. Power and courage that comes from knowing that God is able to deliver you, not just out of the furnaces, but to deliver you in them to be with you, to be your God, the God of the Great Furnace. Let's pray together. And so we're looking to you now to follow you and to learn how to be transformed. So every person here, God, we're praying that you, Lord, would pour out grace upon them to make personal connections, to respond well with our hearts, our lives, our desires, We come to you confessing, God, we need you. We need you. We need you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.
2: For I need I need.
1: And I'd love to open it up to you for a little bit of back and forth. Uh, Dialogue through some question and answer. And of course, as always, any question is fair game. Don't be afraid of offending me. Uh, And feel free to bring in questions that you had as you came in or responding to the sermon that you just heard. Uh, If you could word it as a question, that'll help our back and forth the flow, and if you could word it in a way that everyone could understand, that would help all of us, I think, as we always have a room of all different kinds of folks, different backgrounds here now. So what questions do you have, if any? Yeah, Justin. Daniel. Scholars have actually debated that. Was he bowing? Don't think so. Next week, we're going to see him... uh, doing a similar sort of thing um, it's probable that he's in the mix somewhere but just not facing the penalties that they are but the truth is we don't really know so go think about that yeah. <laughs> it's a good trivia ish kind of question what happened to Daniel but this story focuses on his three friends uh Shadrach Meshach and Abednego uh, different parts of the book toggle between them and Daniel other questions Yes, sir. So you can that service to big yes. Be like yes. Yeah, great question. Uh, this desire to make an impact or to do well in anything, to do, do well on your neighborhood block, to make it more beautiful, uh, to do well in your work and change some aspects of city life or even this country or the world. Amen. God calls us to be diligent and even ambitious, if we can use that word for that. How do you tell the difference? in whether it's a, uh, a good desire or a statute desire, it's tough. Because the line is in the heart. The issue is in the heart. And it really is important for us to be very humble and honest about our motives. Why? Am I really doing this? And to inspect what really are my goals. Let me tell you one great, great test of knowing how, whether you're clinging on to it too tightly is if it were taken away from you, did your whole life fall apart? Suddenly you feel like a loser. You've got nothing to live for. Uh, maybe too much of your life has been built on the foundation of that impact that you thought you were making. And some of you are feeling that today. Can't find a job. Can't find a relationship. My life feels like it's going down the tubes. Uh, What if your anchor were in a different place? Not saying it's easy, but it's a great question. You can't do that alone, though. I said be honest with yourself. We're chief deceivers, self-deceivers. Got to do it in community. Asking other people, right? This is why we need people saying, hey, uh, let's talk about what work life is like for you. Let's talk about what your ambitions are like. And to let other people in to say, does that feel okay if a person says you know what you're a little crazy when it comes to this or that or you get really wound up tight or you get so mad when people diss you on the street what's going on with that and if you get mad at them then you got an issue (laughs) so inviting community feedback it's the only way for us to grow especially when the issue is honesty and self-deception i see another good question other hand over here john you good Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It's legit. legit. good it's really good um sorry to keep putting you on the spot here I just john asked a great question this question uh th- two or three weeks ago and i postponed him so i'm trying to uh, be good to follow up with him this issue of civil disobedience uh, do christians ever have a right based on uh, scriptural convictions to break the law um there's been a lot of debate about this and uh you know, I think there are a couple principles that we can abide by that some good thinkers have pieced together just to outline it really quickly for you to the point of maybe unhelpfulness that quick. Uh, but number one, yeah, real good intro, right? Uh, number one, places like Romans 13, 1 Peter 2 do tell us that government authorities and authority in general was given to this world by God himself, and so they're to be followed and respected. In an incredible passage in First Peter, Christians are told to honor the emperor. Yeah, the guy that is throwing you in front of gladiators and burning you at the stake. Honor Caesar. The default should be to follow laws and to abide humbly by the laws of the land. But secondly, those passages are also clear that these authorities are servants of God, meaning their authority is derived authority. They're they're not the final word. As much as they are going against the will of God, uh, then they are in the wrong and have no longer authority. Um, And so there does need to be a principle where if a law is in direct violation of the word of God, it cannot compel you to follow it. um, Or in other cases, you are at least permitted uh, to break it. I do think it's important, though, that we're talking about breaking that direct law Uh, And it's not just some uh, third removed issue where, hey, you know, I'm deciding I'm not going to pay my taxes because some obscure little thing that I believe isn't biblical. Jesus, in fact, knew that, and he said, pay your taxes. So it's a tricky thing. These are all uh, tricky issues here. Thirdly, generally, it should be done in public. In other words, only anarchists And terrorists do things in secret for the most part, right? And so the compulsion is that you're doing it more out in the open. You accept the punishments and penalties uh, that you incur by your disobedience. You always do it humbly and respectfully, um, even when you feel strongly about it. Um, And a couple other principles that we can talk through as well. Um, But it's not something to be taken lightly. We have seen justice in this country in many places brought about because of appropriate uses of civil disobedience but that card shouldn't be played flippantly Uh, that's why it should be done in community when it is done it's a good question yeah pat and then final one here Sure. Churches, absolutely. Every human heart has the capacity of making an idol out of anything. Um, And so churches, I mean, pray for us that we would be honest and humble if we notice things. Uh, But it can be from uh, making an idol out of a choir or a children's program or a pew. Get out of my seat. Or it it could be just about anything. Um, And so churches, too need to be humble about that and not feel like they're immune uh, to this tendency because the problem isn't out there folks the problem is right in here the human heart and whoever you are and whatever you believe we all have that infection in us and if anything christians should be the most humble to look first in here before we look out there all right speaking of there's our segue thanks back let's take communion